This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right. Time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good evening, and welcome to another episode of Cascade of History. I am Felix Bunnell. We are here for the next hour. We're the only live history show, live show about Northwest history, talking to people, doing cool things with and for Pacific Northwest history. Got a great show tonight, as we always do, and we are live from the original Sandpoint Naval Air Station, Master at Arms Quarters, right by the main gate to what's now Magnuson Park. It's a historic location, perfect place here at Space 101.1 FM to broadcast a show like this live. Uh, we're coming up later in the show. We're going to talk to Mike Lindblom of the Seattle Times about that sort of game of musical clocks that happened in downtown Seattle that pitted a historic clock against a slightly less historic clock and ended up shutting down the bus tunnel for a couple weeks. And Mike uh, did a big story about that for the Seattle Times, and we'll talk to him about that. Uh, later, we'll also hear from Tom Heuser. He's a architectural consultant. He's brought a building to my attention that I had never heard of before in Whatcom County, the Whatcom County Poor Farm. This is a structure that dates to the 1920s. Hasn't been used as a poor farm for many decades, but it's apparently under some kind of threat, and we'll get to the bottom of that with Tom Heuser. We're also going to return to our uh, continuing saga of the 1938 grand opening of the J.C. Penney Building in downtown Seattle. You might remember how last week's installment ended. And I'll buy just a word or two yeah, about what goes on down here on the basement floor. Yes, a word or two about what goes on down here on the basement floor. Well, we've got more than two minutes of uh, what goes on down on the basement floor in the J.C. Penney Building in 1938, as originally broadcast on KOMO, what is that, 85 years ago? We'll get to that later in the show. But our first guest, I want to bring on Sandra Gladish. She's the Director of Interpretation and Education at Craters of the Moon National Monument over in Idaho. And let's see if we can get Sandra on the phone right now. Sandra, can you hear me? I can. Can you hear me? Yes, terrific. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I know it's an hour late, hour later than it is here on the West Coast. You're in the mountain time zone. It's late on a Sunday evening, and you probably have to go to work early tomorrow morning out at Craters of the Moon, but I really appreciate you joining us on Cascade of History. Oh, of course. My pleasure. Now, I, I, have, I have never been to Craters of the Moon. I know it exists. I've looked at it online. I've heard it about it all my life. But for someone who's mm -hmm. never been there, what is Craters of the Moon National Monument? Uh, craters is um, a giant sea of, of lava. Um, it is about the size of Rhode Island. It's a huh. huge, huge <laughs> monument in central Idaho in the Snake River Plains. And it was established because um, I think we're one of the only parks that in our legislation it says we're actually weird. Um, a weird and scenic landscape <laughs> peculiar to itself. Um, it's it's a, a very beautiful place, too. Even though it's, it looks dark, it looks desolate, um, there's an enormous amount of diversity of plants, of animals, and different lava features. 
Um, so even if you can't see craters of the moon or you're going to make a trip soon, um, you can actually see it from space. Wow. It's that large. And so you're legislatively required to remain this weird, a weird <laughs> national monument. That's amazing. That's that's pretty incredible. How, what, when was the monument created? When, when did it become a federal uh, national monument like that? Yeah, uh, it was President Calvin Coolidge that wow. first called the park, uh, the monument, weird. And that was May 2nd, <laughs> 1924. So uh, if you do some quick math, we are now 99 years old, and next year we turn 100. Wow. And we are getting ready for the centennial celebrations. That's exciting here. I know there's a, you know, there's a, a Fort Vancouver National Monument down here in southwest Washington. I know their centennial is coming up. Or excuse me, no, it's their bicentennial, I think, of of the part, actually, the fort being founded. Never mind. Anyway, mm-hmm. so you guys have the centennial next year. Okay. Now, is it is Craters of the Moon a year-round attraction, or is it only in the summer months? Or when can people visit, and what's there to see when they do visit? Um, yeah, so I would say um, just check the weather if you're going to come out in the winter. I often say winter is my favorite season at the moon because you have the white blankets of snow contrasting against the black lava and often um, you can ski out there because we groom the road and you might feel like you're the only one in the park Um, but we've had so many winter storms this year in fact we had record snowfall of 120 inches or 10 feet this year so what we like to think of uh, as we get through the long winter, which basically ended there maybe a week or two ago, it's still snow, <laughs> is uh, we're going to get some wildflowers this year. Oh. So we anticipate uh, an incredible wildflower season. In fact, I was just, um, when I was at the park today, I saw that um, balsam root is already blooming. It's decorating um, the hills and, and beautiful yellows. Um, so I'd say probably one of the best times of year to come is coming up, is um, the spring. Huh. Uh, but be aware that not everything is open, too. So you, again, want to call ahead. Right now, our the loop road, that is the seven-mile loop road into the park, is not fully open. Uh, we hope to have it open at some point, but really it's, it's dependent on the weather. Um, so wait, wait, so it's, still fi- it's still physically blocked by snow, is what you're telling me? Some of it, yeah. Wow. Some of it is not accessible, okay. yeah. Okay. yeah. Huh. So <laughs> I know. That's great. It's about 6,000 feet in elevation there. Oh, so wow. And the snow sticks. And it's, I mean, from what you described, it sounds like it's pretty flat in general, right? Um, well, it is in the plain, um, but uh, no. Um, <laughs> well, well, I'll explain why. It's along the, why there's so much lava where it is. Yeah. Um, where it's located, it it is related to the Yellowstone hotspot. So the Yellowstone, the hotspot currently underneath Yellowstone, basically um, created that smile you see in Idaho. It leveled mountains, okay. and um, this started about 17 million years ago. And more recently, in the last 15,000 years ago, there's been uh, multiple volcanic eruptions along what is called the Great Rift. It's about 50 miles. Um, that um, goes basically from north to south, not not a complete straight arrow or anything like that. But um, in in the rift area is where you'll have volcanic um, um, eruptions, and every two thousand years or so. And so you can see um, several uh, cinder cones on the landscape when huh. you're looking out, and you think those are hills. 
most of what you're looking at are volcanoes. And so you can say when you go to Craters on the Moon that you can, you can hike up a volcano, you can um, go underneath the lava landscape if the caves are open. It's a pretty neat thing to do. And, and even when the terrain is relatively flat, we have um, very sharp lava. Um, uh, we have the, the smooth, ropey kind known as the hoi hoi. Um, that looks, uh, that looks like really, really wrinkly, uh, very beautiful. And then we also have something called aa. And that to me is more like, uh, imagine a shoreline, um, like in really early spring with, um, like ice. So it's like, if you can imagine, um, it's just a bunch of jumbled rocks. Hmm. And so even if you're walking across a relatively flat surface, it'll tear up your shoes. Wow. Now, wait, those aren't those lava terms I've heard over, like, on the Big Island. Those, like, those yes. Are, oh, they are. Okay. Yes. Yep, they are Hawaiian. Oh, that's great. Now, okay, so a couple questions. Um, I want to ask you about the caves in a second, but in terms of that 2,000-year cycle between eruptions, do we know where we are in terms of that 2,000-year cycle? Are we, are we, <laughs> when, when's the next eruption due at, at Craters of the Moon? Anytime. Oh, really? Yes, okay. We're overdue. We'll wow. We'll probably get some... Um, notices through earthquake activity and and just like the uh hawaiian volcanic eruptions there will be more of a quiet eruption where um you know you could watch it it's not going to be violent like uh, mount st helens or the cascadian range and and the last time that kind of activity happened at craters of the moon was when about two thousand years ago oh that's Um, cool they they did some radiometric dating. They've also looked um, at um, some tree rings and oh. tried to determine that. And so geologists like to say 2,000 years ago. Wow. So is that something you're sort of like you're hoping happens while you're still on the job before you retire <laughs> while you shift, or is that? That would be amazing. It would be amazing if they if it uh, sets for next year for a 100 yeah. year. Oh, what that be? Do you think? I mean, it seems to me like if that happened, if there was a like kind of quiet eruption that you're talking about that 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 was determined to be in the offing at Craters of the Moon, that would be people would drive and people would come in to see that from pretty far they around. Would. They That'd would. That'd be great. Yeah. Oh, I had no and idea we were overdue. That's awesome. Yeah, and hopefully it will be in an area that's like not going to hurt our historic <laughs> Mission 66 <laughs> district, but. But more somewhere out in the lava field. Oh, wow. So you said Mission 66. I love Mission 66. That's one of my favorite parts of National Park Service history. Can you tell us a little bit, for someone who knows nothing about that, can you say what Mission 66 is and was? Um, yeah. So this, this was the, um, the National Park Service in the late 1950s um, wanted to celebrate its um, 50th anniversary. And a lot of parks were overdue for infrastructure. And Craters of the Moon is one of um, uh, an, in, an intact example of the modern National Park Service agri- um, architectural design. So this includes our visitor center. This includes the employee housing, um, um, the buildings there, and also the loop road itself. Wow. And and so are, th- are there any plans? I mean, there's no plans to change any of that, right? There's plans to preserve what, what's in the Mission oh, 56 right. district? Yes. The, oh, the plans cool. are to preserve it as it is. Yeah. That's really cool. Now, how long have you worked there at that national monument? Um, I I worked here in my my second go around um, about three years, and then before that, I was here in 2015 um, 
to about 2016. So, so about four ish years. Okay. Um, I, and I, I looked, I looked up your program and I saw that you had recently interviewed Dr. Nick Famoso. Yeah. And I worked with him over at Sunday Fossil Beds. Oh, gotcha. Okay. And, and so the, when people come to the visitor center, what sorts of programs or exhibits and what's offered there in the, in the peak season for people to take part in activities to do there? Oh, yeah. So, um, so we offer um, a lot of, well, we will offer ranger talks and walks starting uh, sometime in June. I don't want to announce the exact date in case, mm-hmm. um, you know, stuff happens. Sure, sure. Um, um, unexpected um, occasions. So probably by June, and we're hoping through mid-August, we'll offer like 15-minute ranger talks. Uh, we would like to offer evening programs on the weekends and then um, guided hikes. And when the caves are open, we're going to offer uh, guided hikes to the caves and um, also Inferno Cone hikes. So that's where you would get to hike up the steep volcano with the ranger. That's great. Now, I, I forgot to ask you about the caves. Um, tell, tell me what the caves are like there when they're open and what you can see and how long it takes to go down and tour, What's it, what, that, what that's sort of like. Yeah, so there, when the caves will be open, we'll have two um, two caves that are open, Indian Tunnel um, and Dewdrop. And Indian Tunnel is, um, both of them are lava tube caves. So those form um, usually with a very um, runny flow of lava. And then the ceiling kind of starts to solidify. And then the lava underneath will continue to flow out. And so when you're in Indian Tunnel, you can stand up. There's five skylights. Um, you can actually see the shoreline of the old um, uh, river of lava, wow. which is really neat. Uh, we do ask, though, that for those who are coming, to leave anything behind that has ever been in any other cave before because we're trying to prevent the spread of white-nose syndrome, which is a fungal disease that has decimated bats. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, yeah. And so is there a um, – do the bats fly out at night? Is there sort of like a, a bat um, – Departure and arrival sort of activity that's um, visible? Or? No, no, our bats are more solitary, so Got you're going to okay. be able to see them okay. migrating out like you would in other yeah. places, like Carlsbad Cavern. Yeah, yeah, I went to that program once about 30 years ago. That was that was amazing. Um, that is neat. Let's see. So in the cave, how far is the hike through the cave, and how? I mean, has it? Do you need to have a flashlight if you go on your own, or how does that work? Um, it it doesn't help to have a like you could use a flashlight, but you also don't need one because okay. of the skylights. Okay. Um, and let's see, you would you think I would know this? I hike it all the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let me see if I have it in my. Um, I mean, does it take so like does it about, take like ten or fifteen minutes, or take them like forty five minutes? Oh, to hike it? it's gonna take you about fifteen minutes or so. Okay. So it's it's like more than half a mile to get to the cave and then underground it's it's just a few hundreds of feet. What's really neat is on your way out of Indian Tunnel, if you choose to go all the way out, you can prop yourself up um, with your hands and then poke your head out and all you see is like um flat uh pohoy hoy lava and then you have to find your way back to the trail by using these um metal posts that's cool so it's just pretty neat experience now is it true that apollo astronauts came and trained there at craters of the moon 56 55 years ago or something like that they sure did yeah they they trained here to help prepare for their mission to the actual moon um so that they would know what kind of rocks to collect while on the moon and um we we continue to have a wonderful relationship with NASA 
Um, they have come out after that. Most recently, they came out to help prepare a uh, mission to Mars. And so they had a rover out at the, the park, and they had a command station in the town of Arco, which is about 20 miles away, to kind of um, uh, simulate, like, how the delay would be um, when astronauts would be on Mars versus Earth, the time delay in wow. communication. That, that's pretty cool. So the, the name Craters of the Moon isn't just some poetic description. There's actually some sort of an analog between what the surface of the moon is like and what this national monument is like. Yes, yes, there is ongoing research. It's very exciting. Um, we're also an international dark sky park um, because of our exceptional dark night skies. And we do plan on having some star parties this year um, in mid-June. So I'd say check out our website huh. to see when those will be offered. But um, you can see the Milky Way um, and there'll be telescopes set up with volunteers and, and they'll point at different um, um, you know, like planets, you can take a look at Saturn or constellations, it's pretty neat. Wow, is it, I mean, what's it like there, like in early August when the Perseid meteor showers are happening? Is that, do people come to that for that? They do, yes. And um, the only issue with August more recently is um, wildfire season. Oh, so yeah. So not always do we have clear skies, but um, June will most likely have some clear skies. Okay. So. So we don't offer star parties, really. We, we kind of schedule it around wildfire season and smoke. Oh, that's such a shame. Such a, I mean, that's a reality. Even here, you know, in, in the Seattle area, mm -hmm. we've, had, we've been choked off. Like, I don't know, three of the last four summers, we've had pretty bad wildfire smoke. Um, yeah. So it, is, there, is there any camping within the National Monument, or do people have to camp outside in, in other, like, national forests and that sort of thing? Yeah, we do have a camping. It's called the Lava Flow Camping, or okay. campsite, and it's really neat. Um uh, the way that it was designed, they, it's like you, you have privacy uh, amongst the lava flows. There's also really old limber pines that are still in the park. Um, it's first come, first serve, and we have been um, at, at capacity often on the weekends. Wow. So if you do want to get yourself a camping site, I recommend coming early. Okay. And you mentioned the town of Arco. Is that sort of the nearest town to the monument? It is, yeah. It's about 20 miles east of uh, Craters of the Moon. We're about um, an hour and a half away from Idaho Falls or an hour and a half away from Twin Falls. Okay. We're okay. pretty far out there. Yeah, and there are there like hotel, motel kinds of things in Arco and places that someone didn't want to camp, places where people can stay and that kind of thing? Yeah, yep. There are okay. there are several accommodations in the town of Arco, Um and then if you wanted to travel a little bit further, you can also check out the Wood River Valley, too, okay. which is, like, over an hour away. Okay. And then is there is there much of an indigenous presence, or is the indigenous story there in the interpretive center and the other the stories and programs you guys offer? Um, well, the, the Shoshone Bannock people lived in the area since time immemorial. Uh-huh. And um, not only through physical evidence but through their cultural stories through their songs um, um, there's uh, evidence that uh, the Shoshone Bannock people have witnessed the last eruption oh wow um, and they um, they tell it through a serpent legend and I will let your readers or sorry your listeners look that up the serpent legend wow um, and 
we do have some history in the visitor center in our museum and we continue the national park service continues to work with them to help elevate their stories those those undertold stories that should yeah, be heard yeah and w- who was the first europeans to to either note craters of the moon or to stop by on their way across the oregon trail or what was the what was the history of the early like european contact yeah, so you, you, you hit the nail on the head there. Um, a lot of it was um, uh, folks traveling on the Oregon Trail. They took something, um, they took a cutoff north of the traditional Oregon Trail, which is basically where I 84 is, the interstate. Mm-hmm. But they would travel up north to go to Goodell's Cutoff, which is the, the northern edge of the lava flow. Um, and then after Goodell's cutoff, a, a lot of people, the history of the park, um, a lot of white emigrants would avoid the area because um, it's a, you know, very desolate landscape with not water access. Yeah. And when it rains, all the tiny holes or vesicles in the lava, all the water just gets sucked down. So there's not like a river. Um, also, the uh, lava itself can hurt um, wagon wheels and um, cattle, too. Um but Robert Lindbergh is uh, is uh, the first white person that um, we know of to have hiked to the Great Rift, and he wrote about his adventures in National Geographic magazine, and that really helped elevate the story of Craters of the Moon, and he helped push for it to be a national monument, and the Visitor Center is named after him today, the Robert uh, Lindbergh Visitor Center. Very cool. What a great place, guys! What I, I really, I'm very excited. And I really want to go check it out. And I really hope that eruption happens in conjunction with the <laughs> centennial next year. That'd be that would just be great. That would be unbelievably cool if that happened that way. Well, Sandra Gladish um, from Craters of the Moon National Monument. I really appreciate you joining us here on a Sunday night, late an hour later in your time zone. And uh, thanks so much for sharing all that stuff with our listeners. I'll put links on our Facebook page for Cascade of History. And uh, thank you again for, for for joining us on on the show. My pleasure. Have a good night. Have a good Bye-bye. night. Well, that was great. I had God, wouldn't that be neat if the eruption actually happened uh, in conjunction with the centennial? That would be very cool. We'll have to keep an eyes, keep our eyes peeled for that. All right. Well, um, because Craters of the Moon National Monument is in Idaho, and the Idaho State song never gets much attention, I thought we would uh, we would listen to "Here We Have Idaho," the Idaho State song. Its beautiful valleys and hills The majestic forests where nature abounds We love every nook and rill And here we have Idaho Winning her way to fame Silver and gold in the sunlight play and romance lies in her name Singing, we're singing of you How proudly too All our lives through we'll go singing Singing of you Singing of Idaho
land of ours where ideals can be realized. The pioneers made it so for you and me, a legacy we'll always prize. And here we have Idaho, winning her way to fame. And romance lies in her name. Singing, we're singing of you, how proudly do all our lives through. Everyone is singing of Idaho at home right now or listening to this podcast later after the fact because, yes, you get the idea there. They really want to sing of Idaho. Here we have Idaho. It's an interesting, uh, I don't know what the syntax is of that uh, that, that song title. It's, it's not, not a, a title that naturally flows off the tongue. I had to keep checking my notes to see what it was, that, uh, what the actual title was. All right. Well, uh, it's Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bennell. We're live every Sunday night from 8 p.m. Pacific time to 9 p.m. 9 p.m. Pacific time on, on Space 101.1 FM, which is a fabulous community radio station at Sandpoint Naval Air Station in the old Master at Arms quarters, right at the main entrance to what's now Magnuson Park. Uh, let's see. I want to bring Mike Lindblom on the line here. Let's see if we can get Mike on the phone. Mike Lindblom, can you hear me? Uh, yes, Felix. Good uh, evening. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Um, uh, we uh, I saw your piece last week about. I mean, you cover transportation for the Seattle Times, right? Correct. Yeah, and but you found yourself last week writing about historic clocks. Well, that's part of the transportation network. What can I say? Yeah, and, and I, I read your piece. It, we'll, we'll put links to it at the Cascade of History Facebook page. But what I read was that there was a, kind of a clock swap going on. And do you, do you know? And you wrote about both of the clocks. One, one was one something like almost a hundred years old or ninety-five years old, and one is much more recent. Can you tell me about the much more recent of the two clocks? The one that was actually being, I guess, dug up there on the sidewalk. Uh, yes. So. The clock that was removed last year is a question mark clock, and the artist's name is Bill Whipple. He was uh, part of the official station art work when the downtown Seattle Transit Tunnel was built in 1988. And the art director, uh, Jack Mackey, wanted uh, a four clocks, uh, clock at each station. Uh, they wound up doing two of them, and one of them was Bill Whipple's question mark clock, which was uh, bolted into the sidewalk at 501 Pine Street. Um, and he was making fun and having a, playing around with the question that everybody asked coming out of underground, which is, uh, what time is it? <laughs> so he put a question mark frame 
uh, and then a, a normal um, clock with uh, an hour hand and a minute hand uh, inside the question mark. And that clock, I, you know, I swear I must have walked by it a hundred times, but it didn't make. I don't have. I don't have any lasting impression of it. I know. I know. I've seen it before, but I don't. I, if you'd asked me cold about it, I don't know if I'd been would have been able to say where it was or, or you know, what what its history was. Mm-hmm. Right. And so but, yeah. And, and so that clock, and then there's this other Benbridge clock which has been there for a long time, and they, they wanted to switch the positions of those two clocks. Right. Benbridge is right now remodeling uh, the commercial building at 501 Pine Street. And uh, they're going to put a, a flagship store in there. It's being gutted and uh, refurnished uh, right now, this spring, for Ben Bridge to, to move in. And so they wanted to bring their historic clock with them. I believe it was in ni- 19, uh, was it 1924 or 1928. It's 1928, anyway, yeah. Clock, it's some standard design so of clocks they were making back then. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they, they wanted to move that back with them. It was, uh, for a very long time, it was, uh, at a different location at Fourth and Pike, and uh, so that was that was the plan. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm trying to think if I've if if I've known of a like a public art clock or any piece of public art being moved like that in order to have a private piece of art or clock moved into its place. I mean, I, I don't expect you to know the answer, but is that that seems like it's relatively unprecedented. Um, I don't know of any other cases uh, offhand, there yeah. probably are cases of public art being removed, but I don't know of anything like this clock swap. Yeah. But uh, the, 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 uh, the thing about the, this clock, uh, the question mark clock, is that it was not only bolted into uh, the station, it was, um, it is, its base is actually part of the station structure. It was poured in with concrete as part of the concrete of the station lid, including rebar that connects the concrete station lid and the underground foundation of the question mark clock. Which, which I guess, so, you know, that makes sense at the time because it's not like the clock would ever have, no, no one would have foresaw that this clock would ever have to be moved for any reason, I guess. Right. It was supposed to be, you know, permanent, semi-permanent, 75 to 100 years. And... <laughs> Uh, Metro Metro Blueprints from the 1980s have a pointer that says uh, clock um, clock tower foundation, and it points to the place in the concrete lid where the foundation is. And then you can go a few pages later, as found transited after this mishap, and find a diagram of <laughs> where the rebar and the conduit are, uh, where the uh, the lid of the station and the uh, question mark. Uh, Clocks Foundation are, are fused together. They are, oh, wow. they are part of the same structure, or they were. If, if if they'd known that clearly, could they have done like a different approach, like sawed it off at the bottom and kind of left the base in place or something, or is that, or they, or would they have maybe chosen to not move the clock if they'd known how integral it was to the roof of the bus station, bus tunnel? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm 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 not an engineer, but. Uh, <laughs> it, Oh, go, go ahead. You can, you can pretend that, you're an engineer. That, okay. <laughs> that, that, that seems that seems doable. I, I will say that the uh, the artist, uh, Bill Whipple, the 1988 artist, did talk to me in a phone interview last week, and he had just assumed that they would um, somehow either use the former bolts or uh, replumb uh, somehow the the base of the street or the 
Clock Tower Foundation and just install it that way. Um, yeah. I, he was not aware, by the way, that it was that the base was fused into the station. Neither was Jack Mackey, the art director. Neither of those guys knew that. They they left such questions to the engineers in in the 1980s. Interesting. And um, so, for people who might not have heard the the whole story, when when did they actually do the da- when did they remove the clock and do the damage, and what's the status now of, of what has to happen next? Yeah, it was it was not quite. Two weeks ago, a, a private contracting crew was digging in, trying to remove the foundation. And uh, as they kept going, they eventually um, ma- made contact, made a hole in the top of Westlake Station. And Westlake Station, by the way, is only 33 inches deep. So that's crazy. If you didn't have this, if you didn't have this this knowledge of the station lid being only 33 feet down. Um, you know, the, 33 inches down, you know, there's inches a, down, yeah. 33 inches, sorry, yeah. yeah. So, you know, somebody digging there, you know, 33 inches, that's less less than three feet. That's crazy. And and there, there are diagrams in some permitting papers of a four-foot-deep uh, foundation, which I, I presume was going to be what somebody wanted to, uh, to build there as a new foundation. Okay. But uh, that's where... That's where that's where the the information ends and uh, more questions begin. Yeah. I I don't uh, pretend to know every everything that everybody uh, was was doing and 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 seeing. Yeah. Now the, the clock like that that's only been there for thirty three years. I guess that's that's quite a long time. Does it have a constituency? Is there a group of people who are upset that it was being moved, or was everyone pretty much chill with the fact that was going to happen? Oh, I never heard anything about this in, until there was a station mishap. <laughs> this this question mark clock, you know, I've I've, I've probably gone past it a thousand times, and I noticed uh, I noticed a clock, but I I didn't notice that it was a question mark. I just noticed, I thought it was just a funny funny looking clock, and it it somewhat resembles the station art and architecture. Okay. Uh, it, I'm not saying it's the same materials, but it has the look that that it's part of Westlake Station. Okay. And as far as you know, I mean, if they'll, they'll, is there a timeline set for the repair and when they hope to have it all back together again and able to open the station, fully open the station again or the tunnel again? Right. Uh, Sound Transit has announced at about 6 p.m. tonight that they will uh, be able to restore normal train service tomorrow. Oh, wow. So this uh, they, is breaking they, news. They put, Wait, we need a breaking news sound. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have one. Put, Dang it. That's, <laughs> They put, uh, yeah, so they put up scaffolding. I, I think it was uh, Friday. They put up the scaffolding, and uh, Sound Transit announced, you know, they went up there, did some kind of repair, stabilization. I don't know what it is. Sound Transit's announcement didn't get into technical detail yeah. except to say that they could, that they were going to remove the scaffolding tonight and that uh, they they have some method of repairing the whole um Without closing uh, the station platform, so we'll we'll see. It is there's not a structural. There was never any structural risk of the station collapsing or major beams of it collapsing. There was a, a risk of, of falling debris that Sound Transit um, avoided by putting plywood over the over the area, and so maybe this is more of a patch job than rebuilding structural parts. Is is why I think they're so optimistic. 
Got it. And the um, so we, we probably don't know yet when the Ben Bridge clock. <laughs> They're still going to let them put the Ben Bridge clock there. I hope after all this. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I presume it. I presume it would have happened sometime this spring, but uh, <laughs> I I don't have any. Yeah. I don't have any information on on what happens now or yeah. how they do it or, or whether it goes in that location or maybe maybe a slightly uh, different part of the block. I, I I don't know. We, we need to. Yeah. And the uh, so much of our transportation infrastructure is is historic around here. Um, I mean, semi-related story with the uh, the connecting ramp from eastbound uh, West Seattle Freeway to northbound 99. Also, you know, a hole in the rebar. All the, the images all look very similar. All the the twisted rebar and the crumbled concrete and everything. Um, you don't have. Yeah. There's no. There's there, there's no. There's no similarity between those two except that uh each in each event there was a hole affecting transportation <laughs> infrastructure <laughs> and one and one naturally ap- appeared and the other one was man created by a crew digging to remove that clock so wow. well i don't know if naturally is the right is the right word for it it took um you know it took took punishment from 14,000 or so vehicles a day and including buses of 42 to 47,000 pounds 46,000 wow. pounds so, um, yeah, that, that's a whole different that's a whole different story. The the ramp was built in 1959. Uh, it's been patched many times, but I don't know that it's ever been been fully redacted. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I mean, that whole saga of the West Seattle Bridge being closed as long as it was during the pandemic for the repair and everything, and then that opening up again. It's I imagine being the transportation reporter, you have to be able to do uh, a lot of, um, not necessarily historic research, but you have to kind of, it, it, the age of structures comes up a lot. And so you are dealing with kind of age and lifespan of infrastructure pretty much all the time in your work, I would guess. Uh, that's true. And there's always, you know, you you can always go one more day, one more day, one more day uh, uh, before repairing or rebuilding something. But... You never know which day is, is the day that the steel expansion joint is going to spring up and snag somebody's car, yeah. or in this case, that that you know one more one more bounce, one more impact blows blows a hole in your uh, your uh, freeway ramp deck. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Well, how long have you been doing the transportation beat at the Times? Yeah, so um, I moved over from the East Bureau in May of. 2002 in time to cover the Seattle monorail project campaign. Oh wow! There's boy, there's a blast from the past. <laughs> well, they're, they're, yeah, there's, yeah, there is, and there's, uh, it still reverberates uh, today. Yeah, I, I was I was working at Mohai in those days, and I went to meetings multiple times with uh, the monorail commission. I can't remember monorail authority, I guess. The, the Seattle Popular Monorail Authority. Yeah, because they, they were talking about dismantling the 1962 World's Fair monorail, and Mohai was trying to get a hold of one of the cars, like a complete train and, you know, enough gear to have it right. not run, but have it on display. And I remember just like, there'd always be about there'd always be about a dozen people from the Monorail Authority, lots of attorneys. <laughs> it was always like these big, huge meetings. So, And like I would go over there with like Leonard Garfield, the director, that's of, who's still the director of Mohai. We'd go over and we'd sit there, and we'd, I can't even remember what we would talk about, but... We went to at least three or four meetings like that over in the uh, Securities and Exchange Building, I think. Um, and well, I was, yeah. Not just, well, yeah, just the Securities Building, but that, oh, yeah, right. well, you know, that's there, there, there's a good reason for those attorneys, and the reason is 
that um, a, a slow or confrontational process with Landmarks uh, with Landmarks Board could could uh, blow a half a year out of your project schedule yeah, or yeah. more. We were always trying to get the red train, the one that they used to film the Elvis movie during the World <laughs> was it red or blue? I don't know. Yeah, we wanted those. Uh, Elvis. Is that, is there any, yeah, the blue one was the one that was in the... Is there any, blue had the worst fire, and red was the one they shot most of the Elvis movie on. <laughs> that's the one we wanted. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe that's 20 years ago now. Well, listen, Mike Lindblom, I really appreciate you joining us on Cascade of History to talk about the, the clock swap and breaking the news that we think everything's back to normal tomorrow. Uh. Right. Sound Transit, uh, they, they announced that they're going to have service 10 minutes apart, and then by Tuesday they'll have it 8 minutes apart at rush hour. It didn't the, – the message implied that they won't need to take uh, another outage later. Later, uh, When I did my interviewing last week, the chief engineer thought that there might be some disruption later in the year, but it's sounding like maybe they don't need that and that uh, there's not enough structural damage to – um, to close them down again. So that's great. Uh, one could hope they got the baseball All Star game. Yeah, uh, that's got right. Baseball and football season. Uh, you know, the Kraken are going to have uh, um, at least. Looks like they're going to have at least two more home games. So yeah, there is. Uh, this is this, this is some good news. Uh, the, the 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 pinch point was about ten days in late. Uh, yeah, from the time Sound Transit cut back to service to tomorrow morning. Measured with a calendar, not a clock, but still a pretty short calendar. <laughs> yeah. All right, Mike Lindblom, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. We'd love to have you back on again sometime. Okay, uh, anytime. Thanks, Peter. Have, have a good night. night. That's Mike Lindblom, who covers the transportation beat for the Seattle Times. Um, coming up next, we're going to talk to Tom Hoiser about the Whatcom County Poor Farm. Um, before we do that, though, we have an episode, an installment of our Washington at Work 1938 J.C. Penney grand opening to get to. And let's do that right now. Here's installment 10. Down here, we carry everything for uh, the woman uh, in the lower price lines and shoes and children. And I think the best man to tell you uh, and answer a few of your questions uh, is Mr. Patterson, who manages this store. Mr. Patterson? Mr. Patterson, I know this. Well, I don't suppose one could say that you have more hundreds of items on this floor than are present on the other floors. But the floor strikes me as being a little bit larger, perhaps, than the floors above, and that it contains a few more items. Do you suppose that would be true in a way? Uh, we do have a larger assortment of items on this floor than the upper floors. Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, you have the responsibility of a lot more detail down here, perhaps. There is, uh, Mr. Bradley, more detail down here, probably. Uh, because of the smaller items and the numerous items they are above the floor. Yes. Well, now, uh, we started out uh, in search for several items on the fifth floor, and the item that we want to locate on this floor, which was uh, sorted and price tagged and sent out mm. by one of these little dollies or cars on wheels, was a wash uh, cotton dress of a kind. Now, I'm wondering if there would be any way of discovering where that would land down here. Well, Mr. Bradley, let's step right over here and they're in this direction on this rack here. And uh, here's a young woman standing beside the rack, and I'd like to know if you could help us locate this dress we saw on the fifth floor. It was sort of a blue and white print with a bit of pink in it. Oh, is this the one here? Mm, no, that has a little bit more blue and not quite enough pink in it, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, perhaps it's over here then. Uh, under that 
Yellow one? Yes. Mm, that has a little bit too much pink, I think. Oh, there's a blue one over there. Well, let's have a look at this one. Uh, this one here. Well, that's almost like it. Almost, almost like the one. Uh, maybe underneath that one is the well, one. Well, look. That under there, then. Mm-hmm. By golly, that's it. Yeah. I, I, I didn't ask your name. Boy, how's that for a cliffhanger? We hear all that helpful advice from that poor woman there at the J.C. Penney with being irritated by that long-ago radio man from KOMO, and he doesn't even bother to ask her name until like two minutes into it, and so we're going to have to wait until next week to find out what her name is. I think that's the lamest cliffhanger we've had so far in the whole uh, in the whole series, so I apologize in advance for that. But, you know, it's, it's interesting. Maybe we'll... Maybe if you go to the Cascade of History Facebook page, you can put your guesses for what you think her name is. What a, a clerk, a female sales clerk working at a J.C. Penney in 1938, what is her first name likely to be? I can't promise any kind of prize if anyone guesses the right answer, but anyway, I'd love, I'd love to hear your guesses. You can get the best way to send us viewer mail there through the Cascade of History Facebook page, or just send an email directly to cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. All right, well, joining us on the phone now is Tom Hoiser. He's an architectural consultant. And he is—he reached out to me. Tom, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Oh, terrific. Thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. Um, I got an email from you or a message from you, I think it was on Facebook, um, on Friday about the Whatcom County Poor Farm. And I admit, I had never heard of this building before. And you sent me uh, some paperwork you've been working on for a National Register application. And apparently the building's threatened. And I just thought, boy, let's have you on the show Sunday and talk about it because that's the power of radio. We can move things around quickly and highlight stories that are otherwise, you know, would take a long time to get into print or get on TV or whatever. But So for someone who's never heard of it, what is the Whatcom County Poor Farm? Uh, yeah, so basically it's, uh, you know, a poor farm is kind of a, an institution in which people were expected to work in exchange for room and board. And the idea was that uh, that they would be able to produce their own food and then produce a surplus that would pay for the operational expenses. And uh, although it never really ended up working out that way, and uh, operation kind of operations from poor farm to poor farm varied wildly, but that's kind of the general concept of it. And, um, yeah. So, so we had one in Whatcom County a little less than 100 years ago. Yes. And what, where, where is this building located for someone who, who might know the Bellingham area, or where, where are we talking about? Yeah, so it's located at the corner of Northwest Drive and Smith Road. So that's about three miles outside of Bellingham City Limits via Northwest Drive and less than a mile outside Ferndale via Smith Road. Got it. Okay. And it, it hasn't been a poor farm for quite a long time. That is correct. Yeah, it was gradually phased out, uh, you know, in during the Great Depression. And I would say officially it was completely done with as, as far as a poor farm is concerned by 1945. And in reading the materials you sent, I mean, apparently there were poor farms all over uh, western Washington, pretty much every, and it was a county function. It wasn't a statewide function. It was county by county going back to the turn of the, er like the early 20th century. And then like seems like this, this, this thing they built in 1926 there in Whatcom County was an improvement over some much more, uh, it didn't sound like a very nice place that it replaced. It sounded like it was kind of a, uh, kind of a dive that it replaced. Yeah, yeah, and 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 poor farms that you know they existed all over the country as well, and they go back to like the late uh, 18th century. And um, but as far as the uh, Whatcom County poor farm, yeah, the building was built in 1927, 
and it replaced kind of a hodgepodge of just collection of buildings that had become dilapidated and, and uh, really overcrowded as well. It was kind of it was time for a change, and the and the community really stepped up and advocated for it, and uh, and the county uh, you know saw that, and uh, they they uh, they built this new building, and uh, it really changed things. Like it it kind of created sort of this shift of consciousness about the idea of it not being you know a farm and uh, you know place where you were required to work, but more of an idea of really being a home. And you know, really treating the poor with you know dignity and giving them what they need. It so. sounds so Dickensian, and it also sounds like it sort of predates like the the um, the New Deal and the programs that were the, in the early Roosevelt administration to sort of create the safety net of Social Security and these kinds of um, public agencies that were devoted to this sort of thing. But this building, though, with all of its history and all of its in- incredible architecture, and this, this guy Piper who designed it, designed all kinds of amazing structures. I hadn't, hadn't heard of him before either, but the building, though, is, is it's owned by Whatcom County and it's facing some kind of threat now? That is correct. So uh, Whatcom County's Department of Planning Development currently occupies the building, and they want to redevelop the entire site into basically a, a new office complex, uh, and including a traffic circle at the intersection of Smith and Northwest Drive, which they say necessitates the, the removal of the historic Ford Farm building. Oh. And are, are they, is the building currently occupied by their offices, or what's it being used for now? Yeah, yeah, the, the Department of Planning and Development has their offices in there. Okay. You would, wait, are these, are these the same people who oversee the historic preservation stuff for the county, or is it a different, are, we have a, are they going to recuse themselves? <laughs> uh, no, no, uh, I mean... They, you know, they, they handle, obviously, any sort of permitting work that happens in, in the county and whatnot when anybody wants to develop uh, property and, and all that. So, okay. but, but they don't have the say over whether this building is judged to be historic or not. Uh, that, that is correct. Um, it's, and, and the thing is, what, what's kind of uh, really unfortunate about the situation, the way it played out, is they, they kind of quietly submitted their CEPA report. Uh, which is basically supposed to do like a full environmental study of the site uh, above ground and below ground uh, to make, you know, to determine what sort of impact the project will have. And uh, you could say that either mistakenly or more likely in bad faith, they declared the building non-significant and ineligible for historic status, despite the fact that they had direct knowledge to the contrary. And uh, without even in- including any adequate justification or study to back up their claim, and uh, they didn't even include any proposals to mitigate the loss of the historic building as well. So that was just wow. very, very odd. And I think there's this kind of this, this sense that they maybe they just want to sort of sneak this in and get it get it through because they're really eager to to um, redevelop the site. Mm-hmm. So. And you represent a group that has a, an alternate plan they'd like to pursue for this facility. Uh, I don't represent them. Uh, I mean, they're kind of so they hired me to prepare this uh, this it. research and put this all together. And now that's kind of in jeopardy because now that the CEPA report is out there and they've already declared it, now it's like, well, uh, what's going to happen now, uh, sort of thing. And uh, but the the group that is advocating for it is called the uh, Northwest Annex uh, Preservation Committee. And they want to see it converted into a veteran's home, hmm. and so that's the, and so that's kind of bringing it back to form, sort of, so to speak. It kind of will bring it back to its 
previous function, which I think is very fitting. And um, I also understand, I, I was looking through some of the uh, materials that they had sent me, that it might even be possibly funded through, you know, veterans' uh, uh, benefits and affairs, you know, mm -hmm. veterans' affairs and, and that and whatnot. So it, it wouldn't even necessarily impact the county. And, and it's sort of like a, it's like a, I guess it's what it's like Tudor style kind of, or how would how would you characterize the, the architecture of it? Because it's a, it's a not, a, it's a handsome, handsome building. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it is Tudor revival style, and that was uh, Piper's kind of uh, signature style, and he was a, kind of a master of that. And uh, yeah, and so basically, sort of the half timbering that you see uh, on the second floor. And on some of the dormer windows, uh, and uh, use of stucco, not as often as brick, but uh, it made more sense kind of in this for this application, kind of being a public building where they want to save on costs a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then uh, steep roofs uh, and um, yeah, and things like that. So and, those and are kind of the sort of hallmarks of that style. And when the county most recently did work to it to make it habitable for their offices and stuff, did they make it uh, ADA accessible? Or is it still, are, there, are there elevators and things in it that were retrofit to, to match more modern standards? You know, that, that I'm not sure. I haven't really seen much of the inside of the building. There's, there's a handful of photos that were sent to me. Okay. Um, but I haven't really examined kind of uh, in, in detail that, that okay. aspect of it. And on the, on the SEPA thing, that... I mean, that's that's a little esoteric, I think, for, for some people, but I think it's worth getting into because that's the State Environmental Policy Act, and that's this notion right. of this checklist where you have to kind of go through and list all the issues that might present itself with this particular building or this particular project in regards to getting a demolition permit or a building permit or whatever, and one of them is about historic significance. So if, if, the, um, if whoever prepared that SEPA checklist for this project that it's made a determination of non-significance, um, right. and you're you disagree with that, and the group that wants to do something else with the building, and maybe any anyone just looking at the basic facts about the structure would disagree with that. What's you know what the, what's the process for actually contesting that or suggesting that that determination of non-significance is not correct? Well, at this point, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, uh, and uh, the Washington Trust for Historic Preservation has reached out uh, to the county uh, to just, you know, let them know, like, we've, that they had already even talked about it as well, which is the other thing. They didn't even tell the, the Washington Trust that they had filed the CEPA report. So now that the comment period is officially passed, they missed out on that. But, hmm. um, but uh, yeah, so it's a little uncertain at this point. It's kind of... I think it would come down to the Whatcom County Council and just... If enough people who are listening, especially anybody in Welcome County, uh, wants to see this building saved, uh, reaching out to the council as well as the director of uh, planning and development and saying that, you know, this, this building's important and, uh, you know, we should try to save it and find, find a way to do that. Now, in your research um, where you found those photographs and some descriptions of the other uh, sort of poor farms in other parts of Western Washington. Are any of those buildings still standing? Uh, most of them are not, but, uh, and actually in, uh, over in Eastern Washington was one of the ones that I determined was some, because it was two different buildings on the site, and one of them is still there and uh, remarkably intact. And uh, if I remember correctly, I think Yakima's 
uh, Core Farm building was cited as a model example from which they designed the one in Whatcom. Hmm. And when you look at both of the buildings uh, in aerial views, uh, you can really see the similarities. So it's, it's really great to have that comparison, and it's great that one of those buildings still survives. But uh, the vast majority seem to be uh, demolished, and a lot of them just are kind of forgotten. Like, there's not a lot of information or documentation written up about them. So, okay. uh, yeah, it's really kind of unfortunate. Does the group who's advocating to do something to create the Veterans Housing, do they have a website? Uh you know, if, if, they do, not, if, if they do, if they do, send me that. Yeah. I'll put it on the Cascade of History Facebook page because it's yeah. That I'll get that to you for sure. Yeah, I'll get that information. I just I hate to hear about these projects where the the bureaucracy or the the, the state environmental policy act process or that uh, determination of non significance, where it seems like it's sort of insincere or it's sort of otherwise kind of twisted by a by a public agency to do something they want to do because it makes it. It makes the private landowners who actually follow that sort of stuff seem like chumps in a way, because it's just I don't know. It doesn't do anybody any good if the if you have public agencies not following the spirit and the intent of the regulations, rather than just you know threading the needle in order to move their project forward. I'm not, no, 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 you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that's exactly what happened here, but I hate when that happens. So I appreciate you bringing this to my attention, and I appreciate you joining us on Cascade of History. Um, Tom Hoiser, what's so? What's the next thing we should be looking for in terms of like? Do we know what the next event is, or what what's next on the timeline for how this gets uh, kind of vetted, or what rundown, or or whatever? Uh, yeah. So at this point, I'm not entirely sure what's going to happen. I know that the uh, the Northwest Annex, is, and that's the name of the current build, the current name of the building is Northwest Annex. But got it. Uh, the preservation group uh, are going to reach out to the local newspapers like the Bellingham Herald and whatnot, and they're going to try to. Uh, get the, you know, the information, the history that I've written up, sent out to them, and try to make some noise around it. Uh, but yeah, I think really at this point is kind of just trying to uh, reach out to the county and uh, letting them know that uh, this building deserves a fair shake. And, right on. All right. Um, yeah. All right, That's Tom Hoiser. Thanks. Look out for that. Thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. Appreciate you bringing us all to our attention, and we'll, we'll put information that we have on the uh, Cascade of History Facebook page. Keep in touch, okay? Keep me posted on what's going on, all right? Absolutely, will do. Thank right. you so have much. Have a good night. That was Tom Hoiser with the, doing some work for the group that is trying to preserve the old Whatcom County poor farm. I want to thank our other guests, uh, Sandra Gladish from the uh, Craters of the Moon National Monument over there in central Idaho. Mike Lindbloom from the Seattle Times uh, talking about the clock swap and that breaking that news that the uh, looks like the bus tunnel will be open for regular usage tomorrow. Till next time, I'm Felix Vanell with Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. Follow us, join us every Sunday night live at 8 p.m. Pacific time. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it. Watch it. That's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell. Yeah.